Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, today with episode 730 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday, August 23rd, 2011. And uh, we're going to talk today about water, all things water, and the permaculture approaches to solving water issues. And I'm going to talk about a bunch of different things. We're going to rehash some of the things that I covered with Paul Wheaton while he was on the show with me on the elimination of irrigation. But we're going to do it some other ways. I'm going to throw in some ways to... Instead of eliminate, because I think that's that's a great goal, and I think it works in some situations. But even if we just eliminate the, the or reduce the requirement for irrigation, I think there's a lot to be gained there. Um, if we can get our systems to a point where they at least can go two or three days between waterings in the in the hottest part of the the year, um, that reduces how much time we need to have somebody come look after our stuff. If we take a vacation in the summer and go somewhere cooler. Uh, if we can get it up to a week, we can probably go away, come back, and take care of everything ourselves. So there's a lot of things we're going to talk about today, including if there's a water shortage, why is there so daggone much water around? Where is the shortage really at? And I'm going to talk to you about the two biggest lakes that you've probably never noticed or seen. Or maybe you know about them, but you just don't think about them. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot. To help take care of you, sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating. That's the wonderful Chef Keith Snow, man. Chef Keith rocks uh, because he teaches you how. Like I'm going to talk today about water and and how you know make sure that you get the maximum use of your water for gardening and growing, and that of course leaves more water for you to drink. Uh, but it's but we're, today's show is all about growing stuff, right? Well, once you've grown all this stuff and you're growing something other than a you know a pepper and a tomato and a carrot and things that we always eat, and you start growing some of this other stuff that we talk about sometimes, like arugula or chard or New Zealand spinach or ground cherries and all this other stuff, and you start going to your local CSAs and you're buying you know food you've really not used before and you've got different things coming in in different seasons and you have an abundance of something in the summer and then an abundance in the spring and it's two different things that are in abundance while they're fresh. Well, what do you do with all that stuff? Well, you go over to Chef Keith's site and he teaches you to cook seasonally and locally and how to use all this stuff and to make great meals with it that your family will enjoy. So check out HarvestEating.com. If you don't do anything else while you're there, order a copy of his cookbook. His cookbook is not just awesome because of all the stuff it teaches you to cook, but the pictures and everything alone. Folks, this is a book you could put on your coffee table as a coffee table book. So check out HarvestEating.com. Next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com. That's uh, Mary Beth Maidmont over there. Uh, one of our most popular sponsors. Everybody that seems to deal with her just tells me she's amazing, that she's wonderful. They, they've never dealt with anybody in the metals industry like her. I've heard stories like this. Well, I placed my order in the morning. And on a rare occasion lately, you know, the price of metal goes down during the day. And she didn't process my order till let's say, 5 o'clock after the metal exchange closed. And the price of silver went down, let's say, a buck. Well, she adjusted my order down and refunded me the balance. I have never 
heard of anybody in the metal industry doing that. I'm not saying it's always going to happen. You try to get orders out the door as quick as you can, but I'm telling you that the fact that somebody ever does something like that tells you the credibility that they have because there's no reason that there anybody would ever be required to do such a thing. Um, so make sure that when you're considering buying those next silver coins or what have you, take a look at silverandgoldshop.com before you buy elsewhere just because, hey, she's been supporting the show and the audience for about two and a half years now. That's some real loyalty from a sponsor. Again, sponsors of the day, silverandgoldshop.com and harvesteating.com. Best way to find, best way to find them, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. That's the same for all of our sponsors there. Remember, all our sponsors are personal endorsements by me. They are not just people that showed up with a check and said, I want to sponsor the show. They have to go through an approval process to be allowed on the site and allowed on the show to get anywhere near my audience because I view my job is to serve you, not to sell advertising. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We have a great forum that you should join, and uh, we also have a really cool gear shop. I've got some new stuff coming in there soon. Uh, Tiffany and Rich, of course, run the gear shop. There's some great stuff there. The Emberlet Stoves, check those out. And uh, again, I still think we have a few of the uh, TSP-marked uh, Swiss Army Trekker knives. There's very few of those left. I would get one now if you want one. If you're waiting for Christmas to buy one for somebody, they won't be there. I promise you, they'll be gone by then. All right. Um, with that, uh, last but not least, uh, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Um, you know, you get the show for free every day. And I, people say, like, I feel bad that I haven't joined the Member Support Brigade because I listen to the show. That's, that's really not an issue. Um, you know, the Member Support Brigade is designed, one, yes, to support the show. It's how I pay the bills. It's, it's far more important than the sponsored advertising that I have on. And that's because my loyalty is to the audience. So my revenue stream comes from the audience. But the point of the MSB is really that if you are a prepper, if you buy guard, seeds for your garden, if you buy tools for your garden, if you buy long-term storage food, if you buy uh, defensive products, if you buy holsters for guns, if you buy anything, uh, and I mean anything related to you know water filtration stuff, if you reorder filters from the Berkey guy, I, anything you can think of that we you know that we would need to purchase, um, there's discounts for it in there. So the membership pays for its surf. Herbal supplements from Western Botanicals. I mean, you name it, it's there. So the discounts cover the cost of the membership. And that's why I think it's worth every penny that we charge, which is 50 bucks a year, which comes out to about 18 cents an episode. Uh, so if you want to support the show, that's the way you do it. Remember, military, uh, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, email me before you join. I have a special national service discount for you. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is water and water solutions the permaculture way. And this is only like 1% of permaculture's solution to waters, because we're not going to really even talk about things like ponds today. Uh, maybe a little bit will get thrown in there, but I mean, that would be obviously one of the biggest solutions you could have to a water issue is to hold water in a pond. Um, but I want to talk about, start out with, um, you know, you hear people like me say there's a shortage of water, and then you go to a place like the Great Lakes, and there's, you know, an un, you know, let, let's put it this way. If you took one, uh, if you took Green Bay, Green Bay uh, on one of the, one of the, uh, the Great Lakes, just that bay, is about as much water as there is all known oil reserves in the world. And then there's the rest of the lake. I think it's Lake Michigan the Green Bay's on. 
there's more, there's more, or there's, there's as much water in just Green Bay portion of Lake Michigan as there is all the oil in the world. And then just with the Great Lakes, as far as fresh water, we have the rest of Lake Michigan and all the other Great Lakes. And then we have the rivers and the streams and ponds and lakes all over North America. And I mean, it just seems like there's water everywhere. Uh, we go through any municipality that's put in water dams to help provide water to its citizens, and there's water everywhere. We go out to the west, like Colorado and places where you're not even allowed to have a rain barrel except under certain conditions, and there's less water, but we still can find a lot of water. And we, we look at this and we say, well, there's plenty of water. Where is this water shortage uh, that you speak of, Jack? I mean, yeah, we have some droughts and things like that, but unless you're growing stuff, it seems like there's plenty of water. And if the Dadgon City would just let me water my stuff... And not put me on water restrictions. It, it would it would be okay. You know, I think there's a real easy way to you know start looking at this and start saying to yourself, this water shortage is bullshit. It just isn't real. Um, it's 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 a fabrication. It's something the government does to us so they can charge us more for water or whatever. The reality is there there is a water shortage, and it's not in the way that most people think of it. When people hear that something's in short supply. They expect that that means that their access to it must be threatened in a, a direct way. And what I mean by that is there is not a water shortage in the United States right now, period, is not, is not, is not, and not going to be for a long time. It's going to prevent you from going to your sink and turning on the water and having water come out to do your dishes, take a shower, or drink. But I want you to realize what a small portion of water usage that makes up. The number one residential use of water in the United States today is to water lawns and grass. And that outweighs the rest of the use of water in the United States at a residential level. And that's an issue, and that's where the water restrictions generally come from that, that affect you when they say you can only water on Mondays and Fridays or you know Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays or whatever it is for you. That's not the water shortage that I'm talking about, though. You see, every day, about three times a day with some snacks in between, and hopefully not too many, or you put too many X's on your shirt size, uh, you have to eat. You have to eat. And whether you're eating meat or vegetables, uh, that means that something had to be watered. Because either uh, you're eating vegetables that had to be watered and had to get water, or you're eating a cow which ate vegetable matter which had to get water from something. Even the most drought-tolerant grasses can't grow in the complete absence of water. So what we have going on right now with the drought throughout much of the south and southwest right now is a situation where... For instance, when I went to Dallas just a few weeks ago, what I saw on Highway 30 uh, going through Arkansas, coming in from Mississippi, Louisiana, all over uh, the, the middle United States where they're not quite as affected by the drought as, as they are in Texas, for instance, were huge trucks of hay. I mean, massive trucks of hay. And you don't usually see that this time of year. You really don't. I mean, uh, this time of year there might be some going in there, but most of the cattle... Uh, are being grass-fed right now. You know, they generally don't feed them all that grain and stuff that we talk about until they put them on the finishing lot. They put the last of the fat on them and the weight and all and that and before they're slaughtered. So generally speaking, a farmer doesn't want to sit around feeding a, a cow corn every day when you can just let it wander out on a range and eat grass. The problem is right now these cattle on these ranges are out there and the grass is dying due to uh, the lack of water. So they're having to truck in hay. Now, what do you think that's going to do to the cost of beef? All right, I'm going to tell you what it's going to do short term. It's going to cut the cost of beef. 
And that might sound insane, but here's what's going to happen. A lot of these ranchers are going to slaughter their cattle early, and it's going to flood the market with beef because they can't afford to keep them, and they'll take a lower price now versus risking losing many of them. So they're going to reduce their herd counts. But then on the other side of that, when they're normally uh, going into their heavy, heavy slaughter, uh, they're going to be less beef, so it'll drive the price of beef up. So that's one example of, of a water shortage. But all over this country, we're growing food. I mean, we talk about the Midwest as being the breadbasket and where all the food's grown. But you think about this. Major agricultural production happens in California. Major agricultural production happens in Florida. Uh, those are two states as far apart as you can get from each other. There's major agricultural production in Pennsylvania. There's major agricultural production in New York State. There's major agricultural, uh, so that, you know, they've got the Northeast kind of there. There's some in New England, but I mean, New York and Pennsylvania are huge in agricultural production. New Jersey, huge in dairy production. So we got that Northeast corridor there. Well, you move over to Washington State and Oregon. We got massive production. Of course, we got the middle United States. About the, in, in, even in places where we think of as desert, there's a lot of temperate areas surrounding the desert where there's major agricultural production. Only in the places of true desert do we not have major agricultural production in this country. And all of that stuff requires water, whether it's for livestock or whether it's for producing something we can eat directly, whether it's grain or fruit or vegetable. Anything requires water. So when I say there's a water shortage, I mean there's a, not enough water to do all of that at the level that we expect to, to continue to keep food prices in check, and it's driving up the cost of food production and making life very hard for the people that produce the food, meaning there's less of them doing that. And at the same time, we have a boom in agricultural land where more and more people want to move into that because they've realized that if you produce food, you produce something that's always sellable, and there's always a value to it. So that puts more strain on what's there because the people moving into it are more of a pure business mindset and they're more of a strip mine mindset. So they'll take whatever they can get for as long as they can get and they'll do it in very, very unsustainable ways. They'll lease it to a farmer who has no incentive to maintain the land because he doesn't own it and he's got to make his crop this year and a 2% difference is different profit and bankruptcy on yield. So that's putting stress on there. And that brings me to the two largest lakes that we never see. And at least we don't see them as lakes or we don't think about them. Number one are the fossil aquifers, the water that's under the soil, like the Ogallala Aquifer that runs from Texas to Canada. The, I think it's the biggest underground freshwater sea in the world. I don't know if that's true. There might be a bigger one in China, but it is, it's the biggest one we've got. It's massive. Well, when we think about something like a lake or a, a something under underwater with un, underground with water, we generally think about it the way that we see a pond put in on a farm in a circle or an oval. But if you think about a real lake, if the big real lakes, they never look like an oval. They have these arms and you know points and, and coves and things like that. Well, these underground aquifers are kind of shaped the same way. They have all these different curves and connotations around the edge. And there's towns in Texas where they've grown things like cotton uh, and wheat and stuff like that for for years and years. We're going back into the you know the the early 1900s that they've been able to grow stuff out there. Well, they've been able to do that in spite of the fact that that area is desert. It's it's it, it, by the definition of 10 inches or less of rainfall a year, it's desert. Uh, but they drilled deep into these aquifers and they started pumping water. And they start pumping water into the fields, and they're able to grow there. And now these like 
if you think about this, it's, again, it's not like they can just tap into the whole thing. They tap into the little arm of it that extends underneath some of these towns. Well, that arm has now receded, and there's still trillions and trillions of gallons down there, but not for them anymore. So there's a shortage, but that's one of the lakes we don't think about. The, the, the fossil aquifer, the underground freshwater seas. Now, the agricultural community has been drawing from them for over a 100 years now. Here's the problem with this. When you draw water from shallow aquifers, in time they refill. So we get enough rain, you know how the water cycle works, water is basically a renewable resource. No matter what you do with water, it will come back in some shape or form somewhere else. But in these fossil aquifers, it's not coming back in any time that we could consider human history. We're talking a million years for that to come back, if it ever comes back. It, they're basically giant glaciers that were trapped and melted underneath, uh, kind of the same way oil is captured, not the same it's, it's the same but different as some people would say, okay? So it's this trapped uh, water down there. And it's, it's not something that, like, you know, if you take a gallon, like, anytime soon another gallon's going to percolate down there because it's trapped down in this giant sealed underground cavern, cavernous sea that's down there. So that has helped the... So we have to, we have to be aware of this because of the danger it presents to the agricultural system in the United States and every place else in the world that's, that's low on water reserves, that uses an aquifer, the same phenomenon is happening there. All right, So that's the one lake we don't see that we're depleting that you and I in our homes can't really use. I mean, it doesn't do you a lot of good to know that maybe you live over the Ogallo aquifer if you can't drill down and tap it anyway. And we've just determined that you know that is a, uh, a finite resource, especially for those existing on its edge. And that's where a lot of the most dry areas are that are drawing from it are existing somewhere along the edge of the aquifer. But there's another lake. And there's actually thousands and thousands and thousands of these lakes. And you've probably seen one in, no, you know, not, in the not too uh, recent, distant future. I mean, what would you say if I told you there are lakes that, that are millions of acres, millions of acres in size? that we drive by every day and we don't see one drop of water. And the water's not way deep underground where we can't see it. I'm talking about a lake that you might look at in certain areas. It might be a million acres or more. And it's only holding about two inches to four inches of water. But it's a million acres of two inches to four inches of water. Have you ever seen a lake like that? If you've never heard me talk about this before, you might be thinking, okay, spill the beans, dude. What, what are you talking about? The lake that we never see, that we can use, and we can recreate and replicate, is the forest. You understand that forests are lakes. That's what they are. If you've ever been, especially in a deciduous forest, in the fall, when all the leaves have just fallen, when it's just happened, and the leaves are still fluffy, you walk through the forest, and you'll, you'll find yourself knee-deep or deeper in leaves. And then winter will come, and then between rain and or snow and or ice and everything else, the leaves get compacted down. And if you walk through that same forest uh, in, in spring or even just early winter, once once that that you know initial compaction happens, you don't walk knee deep in leaves anymore. You're now walking on leaves that maybe crunch under your feet. And then not too long after that, by the time you get in early spring, it just looks like a typical forest floor. And if you go through it in the summer, the leaves are there, but you don't even really think about them. And, the, and they're kind of like, they're not that crunchy, noise-making thing anymore that they are in the fall when they first go down that, you know, drive hunters nuts, hunting spring turkeys. You 
got to worry about the leaf noise a little bit, but nowhere near the level you have to worry about it when you're out there in the fall. But what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that that massive, you know, two-foot-deep pile of leaves every single year gets compacted down to a few inches and begins to break down and become forest soil. And that means that if we go into a forest, you know, as long as it's not one of these pine forests they planted just for timber a couple of years ago, but a forest that stood for 25, 50 years or more without being clear-cut, that there's 50 years, 100 years of this process happening over and over and over again. And as the leaves compact down and broken twigs and logs and everything falls down there and it begins a decomposition process, the teeth of the forest take over and that's mycelium of the fungus. And then we see the little mushroom, but that's not the fungus. That's the fruit of the, of the, of the, uh, of the fungus. The mycelium actually forms a web in anything organic. It looks almost like a spider's web, a very intricate, amazing three-dimensional spider web. And then that decomposes and, and takes from there and sends that in. And that's why even in a place that seems to have never been cultivated, ever, if we go into the forest and we pull the leaves back, even in a dry time of the year, we're going to find moist soil under there. And if we were to take, let's say, ten uh, square feet in, in the center of a forest and dig a ten square foot cube out several feet deep, and pull it up, and then we were to squeeze it, even in a dry time of the year, squeeze every drop of moisture out of it, and put it into a 10-foot square container, we'd get somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 to 4 inches of water in a dry time of the year. So in a moist time of the year, there might be 15, 16 inches of water. So think about a million-acre forest. You have a million-acre lake. And, and that's why, you know, when I, when I give talks about water usage and the fact that we don't need to always be manually irrigating, my question is always, have you ever seen a forest? Yeah? Who waters it? You know, have you ever seen a forest and who waters it? And the reality is that most people say, well, nobody does. Well, you know, the earth does. Rain, you know, runoff, catchment. And as I watch the drought here, We had a pretty bad drought for about, I'd say about about six to eight weeks. We got very little rain. And we also got that, you know, it would have been one thing if we would have got that in the earlier spring when it wasn't that hot yet. But we got that with, with temperatures going up into, you know, 105, 106. We had one day here it was like 114 degrees. 114 degrees hurts a lot more when there's no water than, let's say, 78 degrees hurts when there's no water. But even with that, as I watched sections of the forest go brown, and what these trees are doing, they're not dead. I mean, so, if it goes on long enough, they can die. What they're doing is they're choosing, through innate intelligence, early dormancy over death. And they're basically saying, okay, I'm just going to pretend it's fall, and I'm going to go dormant, and I'm going to wait for water. And maybe they'll throw, throw a few buds on uh, for the last hoorah, but most of these trees will be back next spring. But yet... I'd say 75% of the trees are doing just fine now that we got some rain. So they made it through that two months of absolutely no rain. And the places where the trees are doing the worst are out near roads, on the most exposed side, uphill side of, uh, of roads, because there was less water trapped there and greater evaporation. The dense portions of the forest around here, trees are just fine. It's like nothing even happened to them. Uh, it's it's amazing. You get a field with a few trees in it, they're all wilting, dying, turning brown. You get a great big clump of forest where there's more trees taking more water out, and they're all alive. Why? Because they were able to reserve more of their water in. 
And all of those trees going down really, really deep through cracks in the bedrock even to the deepest water they can find bringing it up and through transpiration and condensation drip actually creating a little bit of surface rainfall every night we're able to keep a lot of the understory alive. So you go to the places where the forest is opened and there's less competition for the water that's there and you have more death and more dormancy And you go to the places where it's the most dense and you have the most life. Why? Because the lake held better there. So we can learn from that. And then I ask people these two questions. Who waters the forest and who waters the prairie? Because it's not just the forest that does this. Think about it. We have these prairie lands. You know, what we haven't destroyed anyway throughout North America. And these prairies have all these native grasses on them. And they run cattle on them. The buffalo used to run on them. And who waters that? Nobody. Well, if you watch a, a video, a movie called Dirt the Movie, you'll see why. They'll show you an annual grass, something that we would plant in a pasture and then tell the cow to go eat it or plant in a pasture and then harvest it as wheat or barley or rye or whatever type of grain. And they show the root system, and the roots are pretty healthy. I mean, it's like a good example of if it's done right. You've got about a one-foot deep root system. And if you think about a foot of roots, it's pretty significant. And then they show some of these perennial grasses that they, you know, they extracted very, very carefully to show the root depth. They're over five feet long. Think about that. A foot of grass, five feet of roots. How much moisture is still down there at five feet even in the driest part of the year? And you start to realize something. The prairie is a miniature forest. It works the exact same way. The grasses come up every year. Some portion of the grasses are consumed. And those grasses are converted into manure by, by grazing animals and drop back to the ground for a nutrient drop. But a lot of it just dies and falls over. Then snow and rain compact it, and it builds up over and over and over. And before we came here and just started tearing the land apart without understanding the system, we're talking thousands of years of this process going on, building this up and building the root systems deeper and the lake that exists even in the prairies deeper and deeper and deeper. If we have, let's say, an eighth of an inch water uh, saved, in an inch of soil, that means for every eight inches of soil that can hold that water, we have an inch of water. Multiply that by a million or five million acres. That's the water reserve that's there. And that's the one we can either tie into and use by planting in forest edges, creating clearings in forest, planting into the forest, creating our own forest, or by emulating the system in our own gardens, in our own backyard. So one of the easiest ones to do is Hugel culture, which we've talked about a lot, but we're going to talk about more today. Now, Paul Wheaton put out an article that I am just absolutely blown away by how much material he put in, because the most valuable thing to me in his article, he might be mad at me for this, is not his wonderful prose in writing, but it's his illustrations and his photography. He's got pictures from his own projects and pictures from projects from people on his forum and some graphics that he put together that really illustrates how the entire system works. And I think that when we see things both as an illustration and as a photograph of actually being done, it becomes much easier. But I want to talk about what Hugel culture is at the base level for those who haven't heard of it before. And then I want to talk about how it relates to the forest lake. Hugel culture is simple. We dig a hole or we just make a pile of wood. 
We pile a bunch of organic matter, humus on top of it, uh, and soil, and then we make a big mound, and inside that mound is the wood, and the wood is breaking down, it becomes soft and decomposes, and as it does that, it becomes spongy. If you've ever found a rotted log in the forest, it can be very, very dry out, but if you tear that log apart, it's wet inside. So imagine having this huge mass of wet wood underneath where you're growing. Well, your plants are going to, again, we have to accept something. If we're going to be good at gardening, if we're going to be good at permaculture, if we're going to be good at anything that involves cultivating animals and plants, and that is that life has innate intelligence. A plant does not make a decision that I'm going to move because it can't. It doesn't make a decision uh, in the way that we think of with the cognitive ability of a human being, but it does make decisions based on its environment and its stress or lack thereof. So when a plant is given stress that it can survive, there's something in the plant that knows there's water here that I need to grow my roots toward that water. So when we have this hugel culture bed and we're not dumping water on it every single day and giving the plant absolutely a stress-free environment as long as we keep the water going, instead of this shallow root system, it sends that root system deep down. It takes tap root systems which can create amazing bars of pressure relative to their size. It's, 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 it's amazing what a root can do. And understand something about roots. This is one of the most important things you can understand about roots When you're, when you're setting up a growing system, roots do not grow in soil. They don't grow in the soil. They don't grow through the particles of soil. They grow in between the soil. They either find the pathways or create them by pushing the soil particles out of the way. The root never actually penetrates the individual particle. It creates a pathway through the particles. So that means that when we, even when we have rocky soil, roots are capable of finding a, a spot where they can push the dirt away from the rock or find a crack in the rock and go through the path and get down there. Now they get down there to where they're either down to where the wood is or they're above it, but the soil and the organic matter is wicking the moisture up. And all of a sudden we have a more resilient system with hugel culture where we can grow more. And it's all, you know, the only limit is how much wood we can put down there, how much organic material we can get our hands on, and how high we can build our beds before they become ridiculous. And do we want to go down into the earth and put our wood down below for aesthetic reasons, or do we want to do the original Sepp Holzer method of doing a six-foot-high bed with a small trench underneath it and the wood actually piled up above the ground? And there's all different ways to skin the cat, but the principle's the same. Wood becomes a sponge, absorbs water, and creates an underground lake. So what we're doing is we're taking the most efficient method of creating that forest lake, spongy wood, and we're condensing it into a single area. So we're making a mini forest floor. That's what a culture bed really is. Think about that. Uh, as, as a forest grows, it's not just the leaves, it's not just the animal manure, it's not just that stuff. It's the branches, it's the trees that go through their entire life cycle. The tree falls over. How do you think the technique was discovered? I'll give you my theory. Um, one day a great big tree in the middle of, or maybe toward more toward the edge of a forest where there was good solar exposure, uh, fell over. And there was no one there to hear it, but I believe it made a sound anyway. And it fell over, and it fell over in a place where water was able to kind of pass through during, like, kind of flash floods. It's kind of a water pathway. 
And as that water came through, it took humus and material and dirt and all this good stuff with it, and it hit that tree, and that tree became a natural dam. And that material built up on that tree. And instead of taking a long time for the tree to decompose laying on the floor, it became covered. And then the fall came and the leaves fell on top of that tree. And then, and then it just continued over a season or two. And then we had this spongy log with this big pile of crud laying on top of it. And little different forest plants started growing there. And some, some Indian, Native American Indian, if it happened in North America, or some, some tribesmen or whatever uh, came by. And looked at it and said, huh. And you can see the big root system sticking out and went, I know what's going on here. It's growing in the wet part of the tree because I've seen a wet log before. And he thought, there's this stuff growing on the other side of the forest that I like to eat. Let me go dig one up and stick it in here and see what happens. To me, that's how the technique originated. Paul told the story of one person, I don't remember who, that basically plants catalpa trees. If you've ever seen a catalpa tree, they call them a bean tree. They grow huge and fast. Plants a whole bunch of catalpa trees. As soon as they get up to a certain size, cuts them down, uses the material for something else, mulches over the stumps, and the stumps become the hugel culture bed. There's a million ways to do this, but the important thing to understand is what we're doing is we're reconstructing the most efficient part of the forest floor. So hugel culture beds are one of the best ways that I know of to, to, to eliminate or at least reduce the need for irrigation. Tell you a little bit about the project that I'm doing right now. I went and gathered as much wood as we could get our hands on and tolerate the heat to get and tolerate the chiggers and the snakes and everything else to get off of our mountain. And I put it in a great big pile and had my buddy Sean come over this weekend. He dug me six culture beds, about four foot wide by ten feet long. Uh, and he went down about two feet, is about as deep as we went. We leveled things off into three terraces, which I'll talk about in a bit, uh, while you do terracing. And then we planted the, or pushed the logs down into there. We threw a little bit of the topsoil. My topsoil is better than I thought it was. It's actually pretty decent, uh, at least in the part that we're doing the beds. Uh, probably because it's in a place where it's just built up based on the, the, the contours of the land. And uh, we left it a little bit concave, and now I'm filling it in with uh, topsoil and, and uh, compost, which I'm getting for free from our compost facility here in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So I'm actually doing everything except the wood that went around the beds was free, bartered for the uh, for the, the the excavator work. Could have been done without it, but the material, the wood and the and the the humus and, and, and compost is all. Freely acquired. One, just picking it up because it's laying around, and two, going down with a truck and loading it up and filling the beds in and doing the surrounding area in it. So I'm doing something that Paul probably wouldn't think is optimal, which, which is instead of just putting the logs there and building way up, I'm putting them down into the earth. And then I'm building a conventional box-style garden around them. I actually wasn't going to do the boxes. I was going to do them just as a standard hilled raised bed. There's an advantage to that I'll tell you about in a second. But the reason I chose to do boxes is my dogs respect the boxes. They don't go in there. So by doing the boxes, I keep the dogs out, which to me is more valuable for now until I can maybe teach them to stay out, period, or put up a fence or something and eventually pull the boxes down and go to a conventional bed. The reason you don't want to do boxes unless you have to for some aesthetic reason, a compliance with a neighborhood ordinance or, or something like this, is because if you do a hill, if you think about a box, you get a square, straight up on the side, straight across on the top. Your compaction is greater. 
the soil will compact more. If you do a hill so it's more narrow on the top than the bottom, you get less compaction. Less compaction equals more of a spongy environment, equals more retention of moisture, and it's also easier soil for the plants to penetrate. So that's why it's actually better to do, when you do raised beds, a mound than a square. But squares have their places. So that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. But there's other ways to do this, and it's all still back to replicating the forest. All right, And I think that's the important thing to understand about permaculture. 100% of the, the agricultural components, the techniques for growing things, can be seen in the forest. The forest is the teacher. Jeff Lawton has videos where he's walking in the, the depth of a dark, deep, beautiful forest. He says, now we're inside the teacher. Everything I teach you can be seen here. So the next one is something that I saw Bill Wilson, uh, who I just had on from Midwest Permaculture, do, and it's called a rain garden. A rain garden is so simple that it almost makes you wonder why more people don't do it. And those of you in Colorado that say, well, I can't trap rain in a, uh, in a barrel, culture and rain guards are your solution to trap water and not get in trouble. You can't hold it in a tank. You can't hold it in a pond. You can't hold it in a barrel because the totalitarians that run your state will come tell you that you're violating law, which I think is complete crap, and you guys need to work to change that. Uh, because you catching a few barrels of rainwater off your roof is not going to drastically affect the water table everywhere. Most of that water is lost anyway and is creating additional erosion And that erosion is retaining less water, so it's making the problem worse, not better. Colorado would be better off if every resident had a rain barrel instead of no residents having a rain barrel. But we'll leave that go for another day. But what Bill did uh, with a rain garden, and I'll give you links today where you can see the project on video and the project in, in, in photographs. But basically, they had a downspout coming out of the front of their house. Right there, they took the downspout under the ground and put a little piece of drain pipe so that the water would come out below the surface level and slow down as it hit the ground. And they basically dug a ditch, and that ditch took a path down along their sidewalk and then made a turn and then went into several different beds that they were going to grow things in with interconnecting pathways that were dug down below the surface. And then in each bed, they went down even a little deeper, almost like a pond. And then that was all backfilled with high-quality mulch and high-quality compost and, and soil. Now, the soil that they took out, right, they hauled that away. Well, they didn't haul it far away. They hauled it to the side of their land. When this whole process of filtering through all these different depressions takes place, there's more water that comes off that roof than that whole area can hold. And the overflow runs to the, to the side of the, 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 their, uh, their, the, the uh, border with their neighbor. All along that property line, I guess, you know, just on their side, they took all the extra dirt and they made a berm that went the full length of their property from just about where the, the front yard was all the way to their back fence. Into that berm, they planted raspberries and blackberries and all different kinds of stuff. Now, when the water comes down off of there, it fills up the rain garden as much can possibly soak in, soaks in. And you can see how efficient it is because there's pictures before they, they backfilled it where the water's sitting there like a lake. Okay, So that lake is there being sucked up by all the organic material they filled, backfilled the holes with and all the mulch. But the overflow then would run to their neighbor's property. So they put this... This, this mound, which is acting like a swale, which we'll get to in a second, all along their property line. As that water comes up to that mound, it stops, and because the yard pitches to the rear, and of course if it pitched to the front, they would have done this in reverse, it starts seeping down along that, that line, and it just looks, water looks for where can I go? 
And as the slower it moves, the more it goes into the ground, the more it goes into the mound. Well, now what looked like a big ugly hole and a bunch of dirt and a bunch of mud is a beautiful front yard garden and a beautiful property line full of edibles and beneficial plants all the way down there that none of it is ever watered. And I mean, you know, he lives in Illinois, so they get more rain than a lot of the country, but this works very well there. Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, when he dug these holes, if he would have filled them up with rotted wood, and if this swale that he built down the side, this mound that he built down the side, if he had laid a couple layers of logs down there and done the same thing, this would probably be working better. If you're thinking that way, congratulations, you're graduating uh, to a new level of permaculture knowledge. Because you're moving to a point where you're starting to naturally stack functions. You're starting to natu naturally stack uh, things in time and in functionality. As far as I'm concerned, people are far too limited in their thinking. If I tell you how to build a hugo culture bed, you go, okay, that's how you do it, and you build it that way. If I tell you how to build a rain garden, you go, okay, that's how you do it. If you're a thinking person, you start thinking... Which one works better for me and how can I combine the two? Can I bring elements of each together? And I think that's where power really begins to kind of combine and take off and compound. It's just like when you invest and you reinvest the interest over and over and over and interest compounds for you. When you start stacking functions in a permaculture system, each function becomes more powerful by leveraging the other function. So... That's that's what you can do with those two together. Now, I talked about swales. And I've talked about swales before, and I want to talk a, a little bit more about them today. Uh, there's To me, there's two types of swaling. There's swaling, true swaling, and there's swale-style barriers. What I just described that Bill did was a swale-style barrier. He basically had fairly very, very level land uh, with a very, very light pitch to the backside of the property. And a very slight pitch to the, uh, to the, if you're looking at the house to his left side of his property. So he just simply built a swale style structure, a mound there that performed the function of a swale, stopped, slowed down the water, and pushed it along the back and created a reserve of water in the ground. You mulch that, you get a very, very sustainable closed loop system that's capable of operating with the water that's provided. A swale, though, a true swale, is we take the same concept and then we go dead on contour now and we dig a ditch maybe a meter deep and a meter wide, fairly large structure. And we take all the dirt that we excavate from that swale and we put it onto the downhill side of the swale. And we leave it uncompacted and loose. And then we plant some plants in there that will begin to put nitrogen in to heal and to retain the soil like legumes. If it's summer, we plant summer legumes. If it's winter, we plant winter legumes. If it's the end of summer, we plant both. And as the, 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 the summer legumes begin to die off, the winter legumes come in with a succession. And then we start planting other things into there. So that's a basic swale. But we don't always have to dig that dirt out. We can do a swale-style structure. That's what Bill did. Bill put... Um, uh, uh, just basically a berm along the area he wanted to stop the water. Now, we talked about Yukoba Sakadoo, who was the guy uh, in Burkina Faso, Africa, who started practicing uh, what they call zai farming and doing it in the dry season, so it was prepared for the wet season, so it trapped more. Zai farming, if you didn't catch that episode, you dig a hole, you fill it with cow shit and organic material, and then you do it again. You do about 10,000 of those to an acre, and it's all done by hand because they have nothing else to do out there in the sub-Saharan African continent. But that little technique, along with planting trees is regreening the desert with no irrigation. Well, one of the things that Yukoba is doing 
the United Nations and, and different countries came into this part of Africa back in the 70s and came all with these huge initiatives with lots of money and trying to do all these different things there. Of course, none of them were sustainable because it was too complicated for the people to understand. It broke too much with tradition that the people understood. It really wasn't very efficient because it used modern methods, and it was expensive. So as soon as the money and the funding went away, you can't keep doing it. But the one thing that they did there was they took all these rocks that were laying around everywhere from digging holes, and they found the contour lines, and they just put the rock, one rock, another rock, just so they're all touching each other. Not really a dam, because there's holes between the rocks, we're not throwing any dirt on them. They just would make these lines of rocks, and they look, they didn't look like a line, they would curve and follow the contours. Well, that's a swell-like structure. It's the same principle. The water would flow across the surface and hit the rocks. Now, a lot of the water can flow right through the rocks to the other side, but now the water is slowed down. If it moves slower, it causes less erosion, and more of it is able to permeate the soil and go down in. And every layer of rocks that hits the process is repeated over and over and over, and the land gets hydrated just by this process alone. So that's an example of a swale-like structure. So now, how do we combine these three together to create a superstructure for water harvesting? We dig our swale... On the downside of our swale, or maybe we dig the swale twice as large if, if, if we, we see fit, or we dig what almost looks like two swales to begin with, and into the downhill side, either stacked on top of the ground or into the ground, we stack wood, huge logs. We take the mound that normally would just be a mound of earth and we pile it on top of the logs. Now we create a culture bed on the downside of a swale. And then the, as the water fills the swale and permeates the land... Uh, it, it, it's not just going into the land, it's also going into the culture bed and maximizing its efficiency. If we have limited terrain that we can actually dig up to create our swales, maybe in between our primary swales, we create secondary swale-like structures, rock walls, wood walls, organic uh, material swales. There's a, you know, a concept called the organic swale, which is simply you pile a bunch of organic matter up on contour. So logs, wood, trees, brush, anything you get your hands on, you just pile that on contour. You don't dig anything. So there's all these different ways these things can be combined. And again, they create superstructures. But here's what I want you to think. This is not man's uh, ingeniousness. This is the forest's innate intelligence. And we're observing and recreating. In a forest, every single thing I'm talking about happens. Organic material, if left to itself and not stripped bare in an actual forest will tend to accumulate on a contour line. It will just naturally occur. And as it does, it's a little bit of accumulation in a forest creates greater accumulation. As, as things move uh, through wind, through water currents, through all those things, if there's a bump, the bump starts to accumulate things. You can see this with our garbage. If you go to a creek and you look at a creek a lot of times in a city area, you'll see these horrible plastic bags that come from a grocery store, and they're sitting two feet above the creek. Why? Because the creek used to be that high, and that one thing jutting out caught it as it went by. Forest floors like that in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a level dimension coming up instead of a, uh, a, vertical dimension, or a vertical dimension coming up instead of a horizontal dimension coming out. And it does the same thing. It traps everything it can. So as that happens, we build up natural berms and swells and forests. And then the water begins to permeate into the soil, and we get a million-acre lake. 
This, this all occurs. Trees fall over, dirt accumulates on top of them, we have a culture bed. If that happens on a contour line, the process is magnified. And when man comes along and sees that, early primitive farmers that did forest gardening, when they saw that, they just continued to do it. All this permaculture stuff is ancient and just being rediscovered as we discover the limitations of what can be done with square fields and man-made irrigation. Moving on to something that's a little bit different, um, and, and, and Paul seems to feel that these two things are kind of, inter- swales and terraces are interchangeable. I don't. A swale literally stops water. It stops it dead in its tracks, and it goes nowhere until the swale fills. And then it goes over a sill. If you build it right, there's no erosion. Because there's like a one meter dead level sill that's just a few inches lower than the top of the berms. And because it's so dead level and because the water is so stationary and it gently goes over the sill, as long as you compact the sill and the sill's just an overflow and it's at least a meter long, it'll happen with no erosion whatsoever. A terrace slows water down. It does not stop it at all. It, it just can't because there's no, there's no abutment. Now, could we build a terrace and put a bed at the edge of the terrace and create basically a swale? Yes. Yes, we can. We can combine any of these techniques. But a terrace in of itself is just a flat spot. So we have slope, it comes down to a flat spot, and it goes back to a slope. And the water coming down from above will hit that terrace, and it does slow it down. And as it slows it down, it can let more of it soak in. But it's not going to do as much for the downhill side, because it's going to reach overflow faster, And it's going to allow the water to continue on its way quicker. Now we can do creative things with the terrace. We can put it on a one degree negative pitch. So we can pitch it back in two. And that's kind of creating a swale. But they're two different techniques. Again, we can combine them together if we want to. We can build a terrace. In the middle of the terrace or all throughout the terrace, we can create culture beds. We could basically terrace a, a yard on a much smaller scale in suburban America and build our rain garden in the terrace and create a greater, uh, a greater control of water. The big thing I want you to take away from today, it doesn't matter if it's one of the techniques I've given you today, it doesn't matter if it's something you learn about tomorrow. The way that you make the most efficient use of water in your landscape is to make it take the longest, slowest path off the property you possibly can. And if that's done under the ground, it's actually better than in a pond. Now, ponds have many, many strong points and many, many reasons to put them in. But in essence, when you do a pond, you have water, standing water sitting there completely subject to evaporation. There's very little to prevent evaporation. When you put it in the soil and under humus and under mulch and under shade, all of those things reduce evaporation and make it more usable. The other advantage for those of you who live in states where it's difficult to get a permit for a pond, you can't get a permit for a, a rain barrel or what have you, when you store the water in the soil, you can't see it. And then let's look at this from a standpoint of, okay, it's gotten really, really dry out. I can only water two days out of the week. And if I do more than that, the code guy is going to come out and give me a ticket. I can't have a rain barrel, whatever. If you have the system set up, you put your watering hose where the system begins and you water the front end of the system and the system distributes the water through the system for you. 
so that your two days of watering is far more than adequate to get through those dry portions of the season. And because you're letting the system do the distribution, you're not creating a false reality for the plant. To me, this is the big reason we need so much irrigation in modern agriculture. When we water a field, whether it's a small bed or a big field, it's completely unnatural. Because it doesn't work the way rain does. When we have rain, it's not watering a spot, it's watering everything. I mean, you've probably only a few times in your life ever witnessed something that's kind of neat. Have you ever been standing at the edge of rain, where literally you can walk 10 feet to one side and you're bone dry, and you walk 10 feet to the other side and you're getting soaking wet? You're actually at the edge of that rain. But those edges, if you draw a circle around it, very seldom is it like the Ziggy cartoon where it's just the rain cloud over your head. It's massive. And that means the water's watering not just your garden, but your yard, your neighbor's yard, and the water's flowing through the whole system. When it doesn't rain for a while, and we water just that garden bed, or just that series of rows, or just that 50 by 60 big, large-scale backyard garden, or even at one acre small agricultural system, or 50 acre, or 1,000 acres with false irrigation, everything surrounding it's still bone dry. Where does the water go? Out. The system uses what it can, evaporation takes some, and the rest of it permeates into the dry land around it. If you take, let, Let's look at it another way. A little experiment we could all do today if we wanted to. Go home and get five sponges. Five sponges, uh, you know, typical sponges. Now, so this will work, wet all five and wring four of them to get every ounce of water you can out of them. Okay? Put the... Take one sponge and leave it soaking wet so it's dripping wet. Set it down on a tabletop. Put your four sponges so they're touching each barrier. Like, like it's like four plots surrounding one plot. All right, So they all touch against each other. Wait an hour. Pick up your sponges that were wrung out as much as they could and squeeze them. Each one of them will have water in it. When you water your garden in one specific spot, that's what happens. The dry areas around you actually pull water out. When you create a distribution system through the land and you push water through it, it still happens because you're still creating artificial irrigation at, at the times of the year when you need it the most, but you're getting a lot less of it and the system's able to use more of it. That's another way to think about it. I want to throw one more in here, though, for you guys today that, uh, that will, will uh, make it easier for you guys to maybe get some of this stuff done. When I look at this stuff, I look at it a little differently than Paul does. Paul looks at it as irrigation itself should be completely eliminated if we can. And that's fine. And I've given you some ways to mitigate that or eliminate that today. But I also think there's a huge place for self-watering gardens, the way that Larry Hall's built with his bucket system, which is just a bucket with a hole in the bottom with a wicker, uh, you know, a basket put through it, Good soil put in there, and then that sits down into a water reservoir. He happened to use rain gutters for it. But there's a million ways that something like this can be done. Um, the beauty of that is that, one, there's a lot of pest mitigation there. There's not as much soil-level pests that you're going to have to worry about. But the other thing is the efficiency of the uh, – you're, yes, you're giving it water. Now, whether you're catching it off the roof or putting it in there out of your hose or whatever, you're going to give it water. But the efficiency is high. And even in these areas where you have water restrictions, you can only water once a week. Well, once a week's all you need. Um, if you set it up with a rain barrel, even a place where you can't have a rain barrel, you don't hook your rain barrel up to it. You take your city water, you stick it in that rain barrel, you turn it on, you fill it up. Well, all you do once a week when you're allowed to water is fill your rain barrel up. 
Now here's the real beauty of that. One of the real reasons that we don't want to use city water for irrigation is because there are negative effects from chlorine on the growth of our plants. They're minor, but they're there, and we're trying to create optimal growth. If you're filling a great big rain barrel sitting out there and some evaporation is happening and it's being warmed at day, cooled at night, much of the chlorine is going to off-gas. And by the time it gets into your irrigation system, there's far less chlorine being used. And then again, it's time. If you, have your, you can water on Mondays or whatever. Come out, take your hose, stick it in your rain barrel or whatever reservoir you've created for yourself fill it up. Now, I don't know if that's still going to violate some kind of weird-ass ordinance in Colorado. I will tell you this. You don't have to advertise everything you're doing. You could make a nice garden that looks like it's built into a, a box system, <clears throat> and you could have your reservoir kind of boxed in, too, so it all looks like a deck or something. There's a lot of ways you can do this without actually being really obvious to what you're doing. I mean, rainwater might accidentally even get in there for all I know. I mean, I'm not suggesting you break the law, but I am suggesting that maybe you be creative in what you're doing and not exactly advertise with anything that you're doing from a prepping standpoint. But those are some ways that you can do that. I want to talk about a few more things, though, that, that help with this. One is polyculture. And, and, you know, Paul uses the example of a carrot. And a carrot If you pull out a 12-inch carrot out of the ground, you know, a really big one, it's really a two-foot carrot. There's like a hair root that comes out of the tip of that carrot that when you pull it out, it's going to break. But that carrot goes way down there. And there's a lot of other plants that do that. Uh, daikon radish, for instance, will do that for you. Um, dandelions, comfrey, anything with a long tap root is going to do that. When those plants go down there, they're not just pulling water up. They're pulling nutrients up. And to make this clear... A, a, a plant that gets all the nutrient that it needs for optimal growth can use less water. So it's not just that some of the water's brought up and there's a transpiration and a condensation drip and things like that going on that allows some of the other plants to partake of this, but there's also a nutrient uptake. There's nutrients two feet down in your, your substructure that a lot of your plants that need those nutrients can't get to, and your polyculture environment allows one plant to essentially be the miner and the other plant to essentially be the farmer and the cultivator. And they, they work together that way. So one of the biggest things you're going to have to do to make any of these techniques really sustainable is if you grow just nothing but corn or just nothing but peppers or whatever, it's going to be very, very difficult And yeah, I said, who waters the forest? Who waters the prairie? Have you ever seen a forest other than a man-planted you know, pine forest for timber? And even there, you're going to see a lot of things coming up and growing in underbrush and all. But if you go to a native forest, how many species do you see growing there at any one time? And the answer is the average person who's not a botanist, and even most botanists, couldn't name every species in one acre of native forest. There, there's so much diversity there. And if we observe that diversity, we'll, we'll observe certain relationships where whenever we see an oak tree in this particular part of the country, we'll see certain other things going on. Maybe we'll see uh, ram's head style, we call a ram's head mushroom. I think it's a mataki is the proper term for it, with our oaks. Well, there's a symbiotic relationship there. It's up to us to explore that and see what it is. Maybe at the edge of the oak grove is where we find our blackberries, and there's something going on there. But there's always a polyculture. And if we observe the, the natural assemblies of polycultures, 
We can transfer those into what are called guilds in a man-made structure. So a guild is simply that grouping of polyculture where everything supports each other. And you're never going to get them 100% right. And what Bill Wilson said about his rain garden is when they started examining guilds, they got to a point where they were paralyzed, uh, paralysis through analysis, basically. They had so many options they didn't want to do, so they just finally said the hell with it, picked something and went with it. That's how you have to be. But you've got to have polyculture in these systems or you're simply not going to get the mat the uh the the optimal extraction and utilization of the system because not every plant is capable of reaching two feet down and not every plant should be capable of reaching two feet down and some of the plants that reach two feet down need some things that the wide root system in a shallower root plant can gather, and they need each other, and they support each other. And that's why you've never gone anywhere in nature and seen monocropping. Nature doesn't monocrop. Only human beings monocrop. Monocrop is we plant one, you know, thousand acres of corn. And that's why we need to irrigate it. That's why we need to fertilize it. That's why we need to do all these things. I gave a talk about permaculture systems, layers, and zones in California several years ago. And a guy that ran an orchard who grew peaches and apricots came up after I was done and told me why what I just told him wouldn't work because he needed to fertilize. And even though he mulched a foot deep, you know, and he didn't use pesticides, and he was mad that he couldn't be organic, so agritrue would be good for him. Um, but it, it just wouldn't work. Well, Some of the people that listened to my talk were going like, all you need is compost and some natural fertilizers, and it'll be fine. And, and they were right, and he was right. He was right in that it wouldn't work. He had a standard orchard. Two varieties of trees planted at a fixed distance, each row planted at a fixed distance from each other, done as flat and straight as possible, designed for machinery to go through or for people to go through and harvest, and a drip irrigation system, and that was that. Well, that's not a polyculture system. That doesn't look anything like a farm. That's not using contours of land. That's not using water harvesting. That's not pushing the water through the system as slow and, 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 and gently as possible. That's not slowing it down and stopping it at every opportunity. That's monoculture. It might be an orchard, and it might be two species, but it's still basically monoculture. I got a stand of apricots. I got a stand of peaches. Nature doesn't work that way. We can't either. The other thing is we do have to think about what we're selecting. You know, if we, if we grow the weakest plants because it's what we like to eat the most and we are in an arid area, we're going to have problems. But if we'll select hardier varieties of plants, we can handle these situations relatively easy. Um, one of the things I'm growing this year, mostly just for a seed crop, is something called a temporary bean. Temporary beans are higher in protein than any other bean out there. Uh, they were grown mostly in the desert southwest by Native Americans. Now, that desert southwest then was a much more hospitable environment than most of it is today because we hadn't screwed it up yet. But it was still a desert. It was still limited rainfall. And what they would do is they would create a great big terrace uh, with borders, and they would allow it to flood in the spring rains. Now, it might not rain again for another six months after the spring rains, but they would let that area flood, and they would plant their beans right before it would flood that area. That would give the beans enough moisture to germinate and take off, and then they'll grow, and they'll grow like crazy. And if you water them too much, they'll die because they don't need the moisture. Now, if you plant them in a hulu culture bed, they'll just fine because they'll send their roots wherever the moisture is to their liking. All right? And they'll take less from the surrounding polyculture. But that's just one example of a hardy variety. There are tremendous examples of hardy varieties. The other thing is growing from seed, especially in larger scale systems, growing trees from seed. When you grow any plant in a starter cup or a soil cube, I don't care what it is, 
it's going to send a taproot down. And eventually that taproot's going to hit an impermeable substance. And it might throw out all these little side roots and everything, but that taproot's going to stop and stop cold. Now, when you put it into the ground and it can go down again, it will send out like a secondary taproot. It will start going down again. It will absolutely do that. But the ability for it to penetrate will be reduced by approximately 50%. So it will only have half of its ability to penetrate deep that it would have if you put the seed directly into the ground. Now, there are limitations to this. There's parts of the country where if you plant a tomato from seed, you're going to get only tomatoes at the very end of the season, maybe none at all. So you're going to need to maybe do some starting of plants in a lot of situations. And there's a lot of advantages to it. But when you can plant something from seed, it's not just about transplant shock and, and, and not having any transplant shock. Because we can do that with soil cube. We take a soil cube, root self prune, we put it in the ground, there's no transplant shock whatsoever. But it is, it is still not going to have the bars of pressure, which is a measurement of pressure, to penetrate deeply as if we had planted it right into the soil. So another thing we can look at is a, is a product called Groasis. And that's something, if you haven't heard of it before on the show, I'd like you to take a look at it. It's a little saucer de design thing. You put some water in it, you plant a tree seed in the center of it, and every day it drips just a tiny, tiny bit of water. And if it rains, it reserves that water. If it gets hot at night and humid, it reserves that water. It gives the, the tree not quite enough water to survive. Just not quite enough water. So that taproot drives very, 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 very deep. And they're using these things in places where they're not doing any of the stuff that you and I are talking about today. They're just going out into these desert environments, the edges of deserts and what have you. They stick one of these things on the ground. They put a seed there. And once the tree establishes, well, the tree's established. It's going to happen. They're even using it now to grow more annual vegetables like eggplants and, 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 and squashes and tomatoes uh, on a kind of an annual growth basis. Uh, so Groasis, I think, is another massive uh, advantage. And it, again, could we take Groasis and put that into a swaled situation and increase the yield and increase the speed? Can we, can we take these out onto to, to monoculture farms and convert them using these materials? Can we take things like um, the, uh, the, the rain saucers that I had uh, Rob on earlier about last week? And can we combine that into a, a harvesting system and push out? Yes! Whenever you say to yourself, can I take this and this and put it together, you might not, the first time you do it, find the optimal way to link them together, but the answer is always yes. It's always you can do more. It's always we can improve. It's always we can enhance. But we should enhance intelligently, not just for the sake of enhancement. I'm going to finish up with, with one thought for you on not overdoing that. When Paul came on and started talking about Hulu culture, everybody was blown away by it. But the first thing that started happening was, well, if I shred all my wood up and put it in there, will it speed up the process of the wood breaking down and make it go faster? Yeah, but that's not the point. Do you want a bed that lasts 15 years or five? By letting the wood take its natural process, we get more longevity out of the system. So it's not speeding things up is generally not the way to enhance them. Slowing it down. You know, use... Gentle, slow solutions. One of permaculture's 12 guiding principles. Slow, simple solutions. We can make water go faster, but it, then we get less of it harvested. If we make water go slower, 
We harvest and utilize more. It generally, not always, but generally works the same way. It's fine to accelerate decomposition through composting. It's fine to de accelerate uh, decomposition through what's called chop and drop. I plant twice to three to four times as many trees as I want in my canopy when it's done. And certain trees are fast-growing legumes that fix nitrogen. And every time they get up to six feet, I cut them down to three and throw it on the ground. That's speeding up soil building. That's fine. But I'm also tying that into a slow solution of the larger canopy tree it's going to take five to ten years to come into the beginning of climax so these are things that we need to think about as we assemble these solutions and put them together yes we can always put things together but we need to ask ourselves why we're putting it together uh, Joel Salatin one of my favorite people always says that we need to ask why more than we need to ask how. Why am I doing this? What do I want? That will lead us to better solutions. So I hope today's been a good show for you. I hope it's given you ideas about how you can maximize the use of water on your property. Uh, and with that, I will wrap up today. I know some of you guys are going to be, you should have been Paul on for this. Well, we'll bring Paul back on. We'll have him on soon. Uh, he's always got great stuff to tell us. Uh, but definitely check out his new article on, on Google Culture. Outstanding. And check out the stuff I'll link to uh, for Bill Wilson today on the Rain Garden Construction and Larry Hall's YouTube channel on Self-Watering Gardens. Those three will give you tremendous ideas of the way you can assemble things together, uh, whether you have 40 acres or just in your suburban backyard. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you. 